Welcome to episode 145 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I feel like I saw you yesterday. That's factually correct. It we is. were just, in fact, together we were. on the yesterday. Yes. How, how was your drive home? My drive was easy. I know. It was like twice as twice as short as mine. Twice as short as mine? I suppose technically <laughs> yeah. that's accurate. That's absolutely accurate. Did so I just multiply by a negative? We're talking about. I think I just multiplied by yeah, a negative. Is that what just happened? Yeah, you can multiply by a negative. That's great. All right. Then welcome to the Reformed Math Cast. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't we go straight into o- so, to, uh, affirmations and denials because it ties into what I'm affirming. Wait, do we want to even explain what we were just talking about there? No, we can explain it as part of my affirmation. Oh, okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Hit me with your affirmation. So I am affirming a little town in New Jersey called Ocean Grove. And so Jesse and I, uh, as we do each year, we, uh, along with uh, our families, we travel to a uh, undisclosed until hereafter location and we <laughs> uh, hang out on the beach and we read a lot of books and we drink some malted beverages uh, and we just enjoy each other's company and rest. And I'm affirming Ocean Grove uh, for one particular reason that I just, it, it blew my mind. So Ocean Grove started as a revivalistic tent camp meeting, like a like a camp preaching meeting. So they used to do these camp meetings where they would have a like a tent set up and it'd be a bunch of preachers and people would kind of like come from all around to hear a bunch of preaching. Uh, and then they would disperse back to their homes after the camp meeting was over. And so what happened is eventually this town just kind of built up. They, they had so many camp meetings going on. They built a permanent structure called the Great Auditorium. And all these tents sort of like became permanent fixtures around the great auditorium. So fast forward uh, to today, 150 years later, and there is a an entire town where all of the property is owned by the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association, which is a evangelical, like legitimately evangelical Christian organization. And they own all of the land in the town. If you want to buy a home or run a business, you have to lease the land, lease the property from the town. And so they still have have certain uh, Christian, I don't want to call them hangovers because they're being implemented out of actual Christian principles by Christians, but they have certain Christian principles that are still in force in the town um, that are still there. And it's really cool because, you know, you're walking to the beach and if you go out in the morning, it's not uncommon for you to walk past a pavilion with a group of people and an acoustic guitar singing worship songs. And it's not uncommon for there to be all these little Christian like Bible studies that crop up all throughout the week. Um, so it was just a really cool experience. It's probably the only like legitimately Christian community that I can think of. Now it's, it's not that all of the people in the community are Christians, but the people who are kind of running the community in terms of like the local, it's not really a local government, but the people who have like all of the regulations and sort of come up with how the town is going to work, all the events are legitimately evangelical Christians, particularly kind of a Methodist stripe. But but it was just a really cool experience. Give us that tagline for that town. Drop it on us. <laughs> the tagline for the town is God's square mile on earth. <laughs> And it really is. It's just this little tiny town. But like, for example, they don't allow you to be on the beach before noon on the Lord's Day. Now, you know, there's some like of the hardcore Sabbatarians who would say, look, we shouldn't be on the beach at all on the Lord's Day. But their their principle that they're operating under is really they don't want they don't want the beach to be a distraction from attending worship. So they keep it closed until after the worship services in the area have concluded. Um, Or, for example, this is a little bit different. They don't they don't allow you to sell alcohol. Uh, in the in the uh, town boundaries, they they have alcohol. You're allowed to have alcohol, but they don't allow the businesses to sell it. Um, there was a big controversy because they weren't going to allow uh, a same sex couple to uh, enter a civil union in their boardwalk pavilion, and they got sued. And rather than acquiesce, they just said, "Fine, we won't do any weddings." 
So rather than acquiesce to the cultural mandate that was coming to them from the state to uh, to do these things they didn't believe was biblical, they said, fine, we're just not going to participate at all. So it really is a cool town. It's a cool place to go. Um, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of Christian uh, kind of like reality in the air. Like it's not it's just not uncommon to like run into people who are Christians there. So I just thought it was a really cool experience. Cut to every theonomist that was like, oh, yeah, when you just said it's God's square mile. Yeah, I don't know that they would love it that much because they don't enforce like uh, blasphemy laws, for example. Um, they're not like trying to regulate people's speech and stuff. So. Maybe there are blasphemy police. I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't taking the Lord's name in vain. So That's true. I wasn't I wasn't one of those people who'd get targeted. They barely enforce uh, like having a pass to get on the beach that you paid for. They have like teenage kids watching the entrances to the beach that's true but that's jersey that is jersey it is new jersey so that's a that's a downside but well that what that's part of the reason why it was surprising for me is that these things have a tendency to come across as really cliche when you hear about them kind of like oh it's like a campsite i know that kind of thing and has christian motifs whatever but it was something a little bit beyond what i think you commonly think of yeah and the best experience for me was, so here's one of the things I was convicted about being at this place was that there was just an amazing mix of people here. And I was seeing a lot of people worship in a variety of ways. Yes. And I'm not saying worship as like expression and music only, but in listening, in conversation, in study, in amazingly authentic ways. Like here were people that they were trying to, they purposely set aside time to relax. That's why they were there. But they were doing it in a way that was completely consistent with this Christian ethic, which was, I want to worship God in my relaxation. Yeah. And there's something really amazing about that. And so for me, the epitome of that was every year they do this choir festival and in that great auditorium, which you spoke of, which I think was built in like 1869. So this is an old landmark. There is a 13,000 pipe organ and there was a choir in this festival from all these surrounding churches, actually as far away as Pennsylvania. There was a 564 person choir and then at least another 500 people there to witness this concert and also sing along to the hymns that were part of this particular event. It was an amazingly glorious experience. Like yeah. I've not sung hymns with this kind of fervor, with that kind of excitement, with that kind of energy in a long time. So it was absolutely beautiful. So I, I'm with you. Anybody that's like just interested in this place, go just Google Ocean Grove, New Jersey. Yeah. And take a look around because it is this kind of little hidden jewel, I think. And it's a really unique experience. And there's a lot of people there that are just passionate about seeing people come onto that property and have their lives changed by the gospel message. Yeah. And they're just unapologetic about that. And like you said, one of the pavilions is on the boardwalk. So you have people that are walking across many miles of boardwalk from places that are not in the center of Ocean Grove. And there in the midst of their boardwalk is, like you said, this pavilion where at least every evening, and I think like you said, the mornings too, they have people coming there to lead worship yeah. and to deliver messages. And this is like street preaching and music, like at its finest, like people were, were congregating around that just to hear what was going on and here they're being inundated with the message of the gospel. It was just really beautiful thing. It was, it wasn't cheesy. It wasn't kitsch. It was just yeah. genuine expressions. Like this is a community that's dedicated to God and we're on the beach. Why wouldn't we sing songs to our creator in one of the most beautiful places on earth, which yeah. again, surprisingly happened to be New Jersey. Yeah. That was the biggest surprise. I mean, I think what's, what's hard <laughs> when you look at the website Um, Or like when someone tells you about it, you sort of get this feeling, you know, you think of like a Christian community and you think of like a Christian bookstore. Like it's just a bookstore that's kind of like painted over with Christian themes. That is really not at all what I experienced. Um, It's actually kind of hard to put into words that don't sound like overly flowery, but it really is this genuine community because of the sort of blue laws that are still on the books there, things like not going out on the beach and on the Lord's Day in the morning, not being able to purchase alcohol. Because of those things, the kind of people that are drawn to this community are are evangelical Christians. So even even though like there are businesses, like there was a weird business in town that was like basically like a Buddhism shop. But even though there's those little variances, the people that are vacationing and traveling in Ocean Grove are by and large evangelical Christians. So even I noticed like you and I went walking uh, with your wife one night and like we like the minute you cross over into the next town, which was uh, Bradley Beach, uh, people stopped saying hello to us. 
Like, did you yeah, notice that? Like, when you yeah, walk when totally you walk different. south uh, or north towards Asbury Park, which is like, it's funny because it's like all of the vices that you avoid in Ocean Grove. Like the second you cross over to Asbury Park, it's like casinos and bars and like women rock walking around in like skimpy clothes. And the second you cross over onto that part of the boardwalk, people stop saying hello to you. Like it stops being this friendly cordial community so it, re- it really is hard to explain so if you're in the in the uh, market for a new vacationing place and you're trying to check something out seriously check it out because this is the kind of thing that i think christians should foster this kind of community like i'm not one of those people that really thinks like christians should buy up a bunch of land and create like this try to create this christian utopia but this right. community really did develop in sort of more an organic way um that doesn't really foster itself to a lot of the same errors that happen when christians try to like make this happen. So I would really encourage you just to check it out and and see, just see what God is doing in that community. Like it's really clear that God is doing some amazing things in that, uh, in that little square mile on earth. I'm just going to say two more things about it so that we don't sound like they've sponsored the podcast, which if somebody's listening from the camp meeting association, hit us up. We'd be happy to sponsor. So uh, the first thing is that one of the things I found really nice about it was that there was a lot of programmatic stuff going on, but again, it wasn't corny and all kinds of different things from music to Bible study to teaching all kinds of stuff. I think that was great. And it was really just wonderfully authentic and organic is the right word. There's just people there that are just wanting to worship. And I, because of that, what I found super surprising and I'm a little bit ashamed to admit this is this was the first vacation for me in a long time where it was rest body, but rest spiritually as well. I got to be fed in some really unique ways that I didn't anticipate. And that was so wonderfully refreshing in ways that I couldn't even have anticipated. So it was a great blessing. I think that's why doing vacation like this is worth it and is something that everybody should look into. And the second thing is because of like the weird, so can we just say that God has a thing for tents and it's kind (laughs) of his jam in a lot of ways. And so because of this started out like the great auditorium was apparently a tent and people gathered in their tents and you know, Jonathan Edwards style, like yay tents. But the weird thing that's carried over that you and I talked a lot about was the fact that there were like, there are 124 of these strange combination tent slash like outbuildings that you yeah. can rent. Although there's like a 10 year waiting list. apparently, yeah. So we're not the only ones stoked about this place, but it is this weird, like half Harry Potter Quidditch world cup tent yeah. and half like, cabin outbuilding and they stick them together and so you're living in part tents but they're really nice right like they're pretty sweet little outfits so people should go and check it out just because that looks it's really unique yeah i kind of get the idea that those tents are probably a little bit like what the temp like the tabernacle was like because it's like it's a tent, but it also has like a rigid structure that's built into right. it to keep it upright and to give some shelter. It, Wait, it was which just tabernacle a, are we talking about? Old Testament tabernacle yeah. or like their tabernacle? No, no, like the <laughs> Old Testament tabernacle. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. So check it out. So what are you affirming? Uh, God loves tents. I'm affirming something that I wore while we were on vacation a lot. And that is if you're looking for a relatively inexpensive but sweet pair of sunglasses i'm going to recommend sunglasses made by a company called gooder it's spelled g-o-o-d-r there's no e and these are sunglasses i think they're originally made particularly for people who are doing some kind of athletic activity because they're light and they don't bounce around in your face but they're just great glasses and they start at 25 bucks and they're stylish and they have super sweet names so for instance like my wife has a pair that's all black it's got like blue polarized lenses and they're called Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Okay. Or there's uh, ones that are silver called like Silverback Squat Mobility. There's Vincent's Absinthe Night Terrors, <laughs> Iced by Yetis, like an amazing amount of glasses. So if you just go to Gooder.com, they're really sweet glasses, really inexpensive and they're high quality. Yeah, I bought some cheap quality sunglasses and they oh, li- yeah. they literally Jesse was sitting right next to me and I went up to itch my my eyebrow and my glasses literally like melted off my face. So I'm avoiding the reform weathercast here by talking about how hot it was, but they they literally dried up and fell off my face. So I totally affirm your affirmation of spending a moderate amount of money on decent sunglasses. Because they just otherwise like 
I had to spend twice as much money because I had to replace my sunglasses halfway through. Right. So I might as well just spend the the money up front on a decent product instead of buying cheap crap that falls apart. Yeah, I agree. That, is that your denial or do you have something else that you're railing against today? Oh, I have something I'm railing against. So why don't you go Hit first it. with your denial because oh, okay. I'm well, going to rail. I'm kind of... I'm just this. I have recency bias on this. I'm actually piggybacking on a previous denial of yours, but I was just on the phone before we got on the mics. Just two microphones. And sorry, sorry, when I said that, it sounded like we were about to bust into a rap or, <laughs> or me. But just before I was starting to record with you, I'm on the phone. And you're, if you're married, this is going to be pejorative. I'm sorry. If you're married, and you are a dude, so you'd have a wife. If you, if your wife is ever giving you that look from like across the room, where like sheer terror drops onto her face, and then there's like a massive, like frantic pointing. That's what happened to us. And I turn around, and there was what I thought was just a standard spider on the wall, but it was one of the biggest ticks I've ever seen. Just oh crawling gosh. on the wall. It was Why a tick, tick that tick was as big as you thought. What you, it was big enough that you thought it was a spider. Yeah, th- this was like like fat Joe tick. Like it, it was crazy big, which is a good sign because you can see it. But I was more freaked out that I was like, why is it on the wall at head level? What is it doing? How did it get into the house? Why did it get to that kind of elevation? So once again, consistent denial on this podcast against ticks. What are they doing? Why are they doing it? Get out of my house. That is pretty scary that it's at head level because they don't, they don't climb normally. Yeah, freaky. So I'm just piggybacking on that. So I'm more interested to hear about your denial, though. Let's get to that because it sounds exciting. Yeah. So what I'm denying, maybe it's a little bit meta. I'm denying not reading things carefully. So as Christians, we should uh, examine all things and compare them to the light of Scripture. And what I've noticed is there are, I'm going to pull out two figures here that I think it's particularly prominent with, but there's this tendency that happens in Christian circles and particularly reform circles, but I'm sure it's not unique to reform circles where somebody, some figure says something or contributes something that is particularly insightful, or maybe even just seems particularly insightful. And what happens then is people kind of get enamored. This ties into like that celebritism that we've kind railed a little bit against they get all kind of wrapped up in this one figure and they start to lose sight of the fact that they need to digest what they're saying critically now i'm not saying uh eat the meat spit out the bones because that's not actually a biblical principle the biblical principle is test all things and hold fast to what is good and the very next first the very next verse says have nothing to do with false teachers so that that's not to say that we can't take insights from somebody who makes mistakes, but there gets to be a certain point where we have to say, this is not acceptable anymore. This person is no longer an acceptable person to glean insights from. Um, And one of these people won't surprise anybody because I actually said this when we did our episode on Federal Vision, but the first person I want to point out is Doug Wilson. So Doug Wilson is a I'm doing air quotes, and I I mean this in the most sarcastic sense possible. He's a reformed thinker uh, out of Moscow, Iowa. Um, The reason I say he's not reformed is because he holds to a form of justification by works. He holds to a form of baptismal regeneration. He believes that you should give infants who've been baptized communion. Um, He holds all sorts of crazy views about the Trinity. And this is an indictment on me. An article that I quote frequently actually has a crystal logical error embedded in it as well that I never even picked up on. So the first thing I want to point out, so we talked about Doug Wilson when we talked about uh, uh, gender uh, uh, complementarianism or gender parity. We talked about him when we talked about the federal vision, about eternal functional subordination. So we've talked about him in critical ways in a lot of ways. So I came across this quote by him the other day. It's from a book called Mere Fundamentalism. So I'm I'm admittedly engaging this with no context because I haven't read the book and there's nothing else supplied. But this is on his website. And he's the one that quoted this without any context. So what it says is he is the eternal father. Obviously, he's referring to the father. It says, because we believe in him, this means that we believe that fatherhood is the ultimate font of all things, the ultimate reality. Well, if we're reading that critically and carefully and we're comparing it to scripture, what does that mean? It means that the son and the spirit are not the ultimate reality. They are not the font of all things. So so by making elevating the father in 
for him in internal functional subordination, even though he doesn't like that term, by elevating the father over the son and the spirit, he has robbed the son and the spirit of their status as creator of the universe and sovereign over all things. So that's just one example that in that one sentence, if we don't read it critically, sounds really great. Like, yeah, God, God, the father is the font of all things. He's the ultimate reality. But that means right. the son is not the ultimate reality. And then in this this article that he wrote called Triune Botherations, this is one I quote frequently because he is really clear in this that the subordination of the son is actually an ontological reality, not just a volitional one. But embedded in this, he's trying to sort of like defend his view. And he's saying he agrees with Liam Gallagher that the son didn't wrestle with the will of his father prior to the incarnation. So one of the criticisms that people make of EFS is that it postulates this discordance of wills between the father and the son ad intra in the Trinity. But then the very next sentence, he says, the experience of submission in the Garden of Gethsemane was incarnational and ad extra. Great. With you there. And he says, I would agree that there was no turmoil in heaven prior to the incarnation. The eternal word did not wrestle to submit as the incarnate word in the garden. Now, when we compare that to scripture, and we've said this before, the Garden of Gethsemane is a very difficult text to interpret. But what does Jesus say about his perspective on the Father's will? He says that it is his meat to do the Father's will. It's literally the thing that brings him the most joy. And so in order to defend his errant version of the Trinity, he's now here saying that the son in the Garden of Eden struggled or wrestled to submit to the Father. Well, what is it? other than sin to say that the son was hesitant or had difficulty in submitting to the father. Where could that have possibly come from if not from a sin nature? So right there, he he tosses out the righteousness of Christ without even realizing it. And this is where it becomes a problem is that Doug Wilson is probably the most famous for his cultural commentary. So he says some very witty things and at times some very insightful things about um, the status of our culture about how we should respond to our culture. He's a very critical thinker in terms of uh, government and governmental theory. So he says some very insightful things, but mixed in with those insightful things is literally poisonous, toxic heresy. Like, I'm not saying that Doug Wilson is a heretic because there's no church court that has said that, and he hasn't explicitly affirmed a heresy. But the words in these texts, if you take them on face value, are heresy. So that's the first thinker that I want to think. And so reform people typically who like Doug Wilson, they kind of paint over all these things, and they don't realize, like, Doug Wilson says some really crazy, dangerous, heretical things, and we can't just ignore that. And so is it worth it to us to have an insightful cultural criticism or an insightful cultural commentator to sort of hand off the fact that his doctrine of the Trinity, his doctrine of the incarnation, his ecclesiology, literally all of the other really significant theology that he holds, his soteriology, is just jacked up. Is it worth it to us? I would argue it shouldn't be. So then the other figure I want to point out, I won't spend as much time on this, is a guy called Michael Heiser. Have you ever heard of Michael Heiser? Sure. So Michael Heiser was formerly an employee at Logos Bible Software. So he wrote a ton of articles for the website. He's very influential in the Lexham English Bible, which is sort of the default uh, Bible translation for Logos. And he has this podcast called the Naked Bible Podcast. And as weird as that sounds, really what he's trying to get out with that title is that he strips the Bible down to kind of like its bare, uh, its bare essentials. Or it, it, he doesn't have he he. He's got this understanding somehow that he's managed to strip all of the presuppositions away from the interpretation of the Bible to really get to the naked Bible. But one of the problems with Michael Heiser is people see things that he says that might be insightful. So, for example, and it was in this podcast that I'm about to I'm about to talk about in this episode that I'm about to reference. He he brought up a really interesting reference to um, the phrase in the beginning of Exodus where. Um, it says the Hebrew midwives came and while the, while the woman was on the birthing stool, they observed whether it was a man or a female. And so then they go to Pharaoh and they say, well, they're vigorous. They give birth before we get there. He brought up this ancient Near Eastern parallel, this Egyptian parallel that talks about how this birthing stool is actually, if you translate it more literally, is actually the pottery wheel. And so he talks about how in the old uh, Egyptian language, they talked about a baby still being on the 
pottery wheel to mean that it was still in in utero, it was still in the womb. And so he argues that uh, the midwives were being sent by Pharaoh to use uh, Egyptian mystical arts to determine the gender of a child prior to birth, and then abort the child if it was a if it was a uh, male, and allow the child to be born if it was a female. And so there are there. Are, their explanation to Pharaoh that, well, the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew women are vigorous and they already gave birth by the time we got there suddenly makes sense because if if he was just saying go murder all the all the children what does it matter if they had you know it's not a valid explanation so i say that to say he has some insightful things to say because he is an expert in ancient near eastern parallel but here's the problem uh, on that same podcast if you listen starting at about 57 minutes he says this and i i quote he he tells this story about um his he was the only person to interview at Lagos. He kind of like stumbled upon the job and he tells it and he uses it as an example of God's providence. And he says this here, quote, if I attribute divine activity to a series of events, what I'm doing is taking a series of events and mythicizing them. I'm assigning a divine role to things that really happened. Folks, those things he's talking about the Exodus, those things happened. It's still history. What I'm suggesting is when we look at the Bible, uh, look at a book like the Bible, we have writers that theologize things. And then he goes on to say, now I may get to heaven and God may tell me, you know, what recon that reconstruction of what happened that day, that other thing, that was something else. I might get corrected and I parse that. And here's where it gets dangerous. When we have the Bible, that is what the biblical writers doing. These things happened the way they tell the story. Okay. They may not be connecting the dots the way God would connect them. And then he says, I think the Bible is a little more reliable than my retelling of how I got my job. So what he's saying here is that the biblical writers are reflecting on God's acts in history, right? So they're reflecting on real history, but then maybe they didn't draw the right conclusions about how God was actually operating in history. Well, that's a flat out denial of, of biblical infallibility. And so people trip all over themselves because they love Michael Heiser because he's got this seemingly... Uh, endless knowledge of ancient Near Eastern um, history and parallels. And so he's able to draw some of these this meaning out of the text that maybe legitimately we've lost because we don't have that knowledge. But when you get down to it, he's treating the Bible, he's treating the Old Testament text as a possibly errant reflection of the Israelite people. That And I, this is an exaggeration, but this is his words, that may be a little bit more reliable than his telling of the providential acts in history. So, so he's denying infallibility, like straight up he's denying infallibility. So we have to be careful. And so I'm denying people not reading sources critically. Just because someone says something good, even if it's really, really good, does not mean that they are automatically a good teacher. And this translates to people like Wayne Grudem, Owen Strand, Doug Wilson, as we said, John Piper, John MacArthur, like there's all these figures that say really good things, but a lot of times they say really bad things and we need to be critical and never shut off that critical faculty that we're engaged in when we're reading these things and always compare them to the word of God. All right. Well, this has been a great episode. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just, I'm all like lit up. Mike Heiser also just published this episode that was like, the Old Testament is not all about Jesus. And I'm like, Jesus literally says that the Old Testament is all about Jesus. So like, I'm going to trust Jesus more than I'm going to trust Michael Heiser. So there's been like a thousand people who've responded to that article. So I'm not going to do it in depth, but he just has these really screwy things that he says. You really only took two breaths during that entire segment. Yeah. I know I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm struggling not to comment on the weatherman, but I got to do it. It is like 90 degrees out and it's probably like 105 degrees in this room. So like, if I just keel over, just take on the monologue, keep the episode going and like text my wife to call the ambulance. I got you. No worries. I'll make sure we finish first before I send that text, but I appreciate it. You're wearing like a dress shirt and a bow tie still. Yeah. It's just been a crazy morning, but I felt like I wanted to dress up for you. I'm not even wearing pants. <laughs> I mean, maybe you're not either. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't expect we were going to get that real. Like that's pulling back a lot of the curtain. I but, actually am wearing pants. That was just a punchline. Yeah, no, I know. But that, that would be great if I was, if you just lulled me in and I was like, oh, I'm not either. This is just, it's just business up top here. Party down below. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, oh, I was, I was just joking. And you're like, oh yeah, I was just joking too. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. So Jesse... Even though this is my topic, what are we talking about tonight? Do you know? 
I do. Well, I do know. I think at least I think I did until we started with down that path. Um, we're continuing our series and talking about all things end times or eschatology. And today we're getting into full impartial preterism, which I'm excited about because I don't know how many people are well versed with preterism. Yeah, I'm going to throw in a couple more uh, other views that sort of tie into it as well. So we're also going to touch on a view called idealism. Uh, and we're going to touch very briefly, because I don't know much about this view other than what I've managed to scrape together in the last week or so, on a view called historicism. So yes. um, so preterism is a view which basically says, um, and, and this is why it's it's apropos to put it sort of in the middle of our episodes. So last time we did eschatology cast, we talked about uh, uh, premillennialism and uh, dispensational premillennialism. And next time we're going to talk about amillennialism and postmillennialism. And so I- idealism is a little bit of a different animal, but preterism, partial preterism, fits nicely between those two because um, – what partial preterism does is it interprets the events recorded, particularly in the book of Revelation, but also some of the other prophetic books, as as literal history that may or may not have a symbolic flavor to it. And the reason it fits well to go between the two is because um, pre, premillennialists interpret the book of Revelation as literal history that may or may not have some symbolic events. But from the vantage point of where we sit now... Like me and you in 2019, most of those things, if not all of those things, are still in the future. They still are yet to happen. So when we read about the locusts attacking people and people wishing they could die and asking for the mountains to crawl down on them, the, the difference between a premillennialist and an amillennialist or a postmillennialist is not necessarily that we may interpret that symbolically or, or figuratively. We might interpret it to be some sort of symbolism. We might interpret it to be some sort of historical event. We may interpret it to be very literal. We might think there really are um, going to be locusts coming. But the difference is that a preterist interprets that as though from the vantage point we're in now, currently, not the writer of the text, but the current perspective we're in now, most of those events have already happened. So both of us agree that from the vantage point of the author, which I I would say is John the Apostle, I think you're probably in the same spot as I am, from the vantage point of the author, those events are future events. But from the vantage point of us as the church in 2019, that's where we start to disagree about whether those events are mostly in the future or mostly in the past. So as an amillennialist, I hold a preterist view or a partial preterist view that a good portion, if not the majority of the of the events chronicled or prophesied in the book of Revelation are future to the Apostle John when he wrote it, but past to the church now in our history currently. Does that make sense? Yeah, it might be helpful for those who are trying to catalog this stuff to think of it this way. Maybe we can take a step back to take us two steps forward. Basically, over the course of the church's history, there have been four main approaches. And I'm glad that you you and I are on the same page because you were already thinking about those. So, and we're talking about, when we say, when I say approaches, we're talking in terms of eschatology and of course, principally our hermeneutical approach to the book of Revelation. So those four approaches are futurist, historicist, idealist, or preterist. Right. So the futurist is probably the one that's most common to people. And that's basically taking everything from Revelation 4, 1 and forward to be prophecy of things that are going to occur just before the second coming of Christ. Right. The historicist approach understands revelation to be a prophecy of church history from like the first advent until the second coming of Christ. Right. The idealist or symbolic approach that you were talking about basically takes the approach that revelation doesn't contain prophecies of specific historical events. So in other words, it's using symbols to express some kind of timeless principle concerning conflict between good and evil. And then the last one is this preterist one. And in that approach, revelation is we're talking about the book being contrasted with the futurist approach. So in other words, according to that preterist approach, most or all or some of the prophecies in the book of revelation were fulfilled not long after John penned them. Right. So in other words, their fulfillment is in the past from the perspective of the 21st century. Correct. So it's, it's not, it's not talking about the fulfillment of these events 
uh, from the perspective of the writer of the text. Right. Everybody agrees, or mostly everybody agrees, even the idealist for the most part would agree that uh, the events that are described in the book of Revelation are described as future events from the perspective of the writer. But the preterist believes, and I, I'm a partial preterist, so I would believe that the vast majority of events, as you say, are fulfilled uh in the very near future after John was writing. And so I take an early view. P people who are preterists or partial preterists tend to take the early view of the Gospel of John, which places it usually around like 60 or 70 A.D. Or sorry, a little bit earlier than that, 60-ish, right. prior to the destruction of the temple. So all the language about the temple and the things that happened to the temple, the things that happened in the temple, all of that language in a preterist perspective, a partial preterist perspective, is saying that those things were fulfilled in the time period between when John wrote the, wrote the book of Revelation and the period when the temple was destroyed in 68 AD by the Romans. And then maybe some other events happen in, immediately after that in kind of the ensuing um, conflict and struggle that the Jewish people faced as they tried to sort of like push back against the Romans and were ultimately kind of like sent into another exile. Right. It would probably be helpful for us to distinguish as well, because so that people don't, we don't get all kinds of like hate mail. First, preterism, the root of that is just a Latin word that means past. So right. it's just a fancy way of saying things that have already occurred. But the second thing is that, as you kind of already intimated, preterism is usually divided into some kind of scale of graduation. Right. So there is what we call full preterism, which we can talk about because I think we probably have things to say about yep. that in particular. Something that's called consistent or hyper preterism. Anytime you get hyper in front of a verb, it's usually not a particularly good thing, but. Sometimes full preterism is called hyperpreterism, right. and then partial preterism, what you're talking about. And so that moderate view or the partial preterist view, that's very common in theological circles. In fact, like R.C. Sproul right. spoke at length about his views of partial preterism. And basically, I would encapsulate that by saying those that hold that view, while they believe the literal resurrection second coming of Jesus are yet in the future— the other prophecies in Revelation and in Matthew 24 and 25, those have already been fulfilled right. when Jerusalem fell to Rome in AD 70. So here's like, let's throw out an example of something that we might say falls into the partial preterist camp. And let's do something like simple, maybe simple, depends on how you, we didn't talk about this, so let's see how you do this. <laughs> but one of the things that I might throw into the partial preterism saying, well, this is something I think has already been fulfilled. Just one simple thing would be, for instance, like the mark of the beast and right. the, the having the mark of the beast to trade goods and services. I would say that is something that's already been fulfilled. That's funny for me because I work in finance. A lot of people all the time are being like, anytime any kind of new technology comes yeah. in that transfers payments between people, they're always like, see, this is the market that is coming. You're not going to be able to trade. You can't be a Christian and have this thing. And this is one of those things where you point to and say, if you, if you look at the cultural context, what happened after the fall of Jerusalem, I think it's, to me, it's very clear that already took place. Right. So that's contrasted with like this, what I'm going to say, extreme or full preterism, which goes so far as to say that all the New Testament predictions were already fulfilled in the past. And that would include those of the resurrection, the second coming. Right. So to me, that's a heretical viewpoint. Right. I'm guessing you would feel the same way. Yeah. But because it has to deny two fundamentals of our faith, which is the physical resurrection of Christ and a literal second coming. So I just want to throw out the distinction before we get further that there are different views in this and you can be a partial preterist without really coming into like against the scriptures themselves. Yeah. And, and it should be said that um, when we talk about these views, we're talking about perspectives, particularly on the book of Revelation, especially like the later parts of the book of Revelation. Yes. So we're kind of framing this around the millennium with the, the premillennial, postmillennial kind of um, heuristic we're using. But it's possible to be a full preterist in reference to the book of Revelation and not be a heretic if you think that the prophecies of like the consummate resurrection and stuff, that those things have still yet to come. But that's not what the book of Revelation is talking about. So like exactly. Christ talks about there, there's all sorts of um, our our theology of the eschatological resurrection of all people is not dependent in total 
on the book of Revelation. So so you could be a full preterist in reference to the book of Revelation and not be a heretic, but I've never actually encountered somebody who holds that position, so it's entirely a hypothetical. Um, almost everybody that I have talked to or have interacted with in any sense who would, would be classified as a full preterist is heretical in the sense that they deny a future re- bodily return of Christ and a future right. resurre- bodily resurrection of the just and the, and the unjust. Um, they, they turn it into a spiritual resurrection. It's the people who are these um, full preterists tend to basically discard or jettison the the inspiration of scripture entirely. And it becomes this sort of um, like reflection. Uh, it actually, it's, it's ironically, it's not all that different than some of the things that Michael Heiser says about the way that the Old Testament came to be is this sort of reflection, pious reflection on um on a religious experience or something like that. So it's important right. to to delineate that we're talking about um, things on a, on a continuum here, right? You'll hear me a lot of times talk about how continuums aren't the best way to, to approach these things, but there there's a continuum that we're talking about here of people who hold, you know, if we were to say it as a percentage, like what percentage of events prophesied in particularly the book of Revelation, what percentage of those occurred shortly after the lifetime or after the writing of the book of Revelation and what percentage are still in the future from the vantage point of whatever era of the church we're in. Somewhere on that spectrum, everybody falls. And it's not as though you can't be a partial predilist. The The reality is that even the most hardcore dispensationalists, I shouldn't say the most, but even most dispensationalists are still in some sense partial preterists in that they would exactly. still look and see certain elements of what's going on in the book of Revelation and be able to point to historical realities that fulfill those. And they wouldn't necessarily deny that. So there are a lot of dispensationalists that would acknowledge that the mark of the beast is, and actually it's, it's funny because it's usually dispensationalists that say this, the mark of the beast, if you if you take the phrase Caesar or Nero Caesar and you do some sort of crazy uh, Hebrew gematria, which is just like number games with letters, it comes out as uh, Neron Caesar as 666. And then they're like, oh, and if you have the variant 616, it's actually even better. And they come up with this schema. There are mostly dispensationalists who hold that view. Well, what they're saying is that that thing right there is at least in part fulfilled in the past from our perspective. So there are very few people that would say absolutely nothing in the book of Revelation has taken place. And there are very few people who would say absolutely everything in the book of Revelation is taking place. And we're talking about once you get past the letters to the church, right? There's that opening four-ish chapters that are clearly historical. They're not prophetic at all. They don't operate like prophecy linguistically. They don't look like prophecy. We're talking about everything after that. Um, But there is a certain breaking point, though, where, like, I think once you get to a certain point, you can't really be a premillennialist anymore if you think almost everything has already happened. Like it's maybe you could, but there's certain kind of like um, collocations or associations that happen in theology and a strong partial preterism where where you're part of preterism is is maybe a majority doesn't really work so well when you're talking about um, premillennialism. And the same is true with amillennialism or postmillennialism. If you think most of the things in the book of Revelation haven't happened yet, you're probably not going to have a consistent amillennial or postmillennial view. But I think there's actually more people in the futurist camp than maybe you yeah. might presume at first, because I don't think that most people are partial predators. I think if you ask somebody to take a look at anything from you know Revelation four one on, they're going. The natural instinction I think is instinction. Natural instinct is to try to allegorize everything that's in there. This is where we get into the weirdness between like locusts and Apache helicopters. Right. Like that happens because people are futurists by nature because they think that everything in revelation means it must be from their, from their standpoint where they are in time and history, it must be in the future. Right. So I, I think there's actually more people that that is the default position. Cause I think if you start to talk to people and say, is it possible that the mark of the beast, the whole point of like, you know, the, the buying and selling of goods and services, that stuff happened in the past. I think that's a lot of people will be like, Oh, I didn't even think that that could have already happened. Right. It seems like this is from my standpoint because of my, chronological snobbery it has to happen beyond the period where i am living and so that is i think eye-opening for a lot of people yeah yeah and i i think there's a lot of historical reasons why that's the case i think that's particularly an american phenomenon more so than other 
uh, parts of the Christian tradition is dispensational premillennialism has a particularly outsized influence in American evangelicalism particularly. So I've been listening to a podcast. I forget her name. It's Allie something or other, but it's called Relatable. You would recognize her if you saw a video of her. She's blonde. She's got like thick hipster glasses and she's like ultra conservative, but she's also kind of a MacArthur-esque Calvinist. And she did an episode on eschatology and she kept on saying, I think that this is the dominant view in history. And she was talking about premillennial rapture, premillennial dispensationalism. She kept on saying, this is the dominant view. This is the default view of most Christians throughout history, which factually is just not the case at all. Um, premillennialism, maybe I could get behind saying that that's the dominant view, but premillennial dispensationalism is a, a view that didn't exist before like 1808 or something like that. It's, it's a brand new theology on the scene, but because it's dispensationalism is probably one of the most, uh, genuinely American theologies that we have or genuinely English speaking theologies that we have. Um, even like the Westminster tradition, which developed in a British context and English speaking context, draws antecedents back into the continental Dutch and Swiss um, traditions and French traditions. But dispensationalism was delivered by fiat by a, a supposed vision that some girl in England had, and then it got adopted by the Plymouth Brethren. And so you're right that I think most English speaking Christians probably are by default. They assume this is just the historic Christian view, but when you look at things, it's really really not. The dispensational view is not the historic, not like the dominant historic Christian view. Um, so I just think we have to be careful about that. And, and you're right. Like most people probably are futurists. And I think that's because, you know, you think about these things and you think about them in this fantastical kind of way. You, right. you look at these things and they're, they're this fantastic things about beasts from the sea and fire raining down from heaven and silence in the sky and angels and demons and all this stuff, dragons and monsters and people getting swallowed up in the earth. And we go, well, I've never that that's not history. Like, I've never seen any of that in the history books. So all of this stuff must be in the future. And that's where I think the idealist position actually gets a little bit of weight. How much experience do you have with the idealist position? I mean, just a little bit in the sense that because everything is, as you said, like so fantastical, there's a sense when you study Revelation, even from somebody that's instructing you and that has a fair amount of knowledge, there always has to be this. There is a mystical, there's a mystery right. that, that's happening here that we're, it's worthwhile to study and try to understand. And yet we know for certain that there's a lot that we cannot understand in its entirety. And so that can become such a weight that it becomes overwhelming that the tendency is just to say, rather than try to figure out what these things actually represent. Let's just talk about the ideas that they probably could yeah. represent. And so I think idealism is also very common. Yeah. And this is, this is one of those things. There's kind of a soft form of ideal idealism, and then there's a hard form of idealism. And so the full preterist also tends to be a full or a hard idealist in that right. uh, these things all happened in the past. And John, some of them would actually say these things are actually past experiences from the perspective of the writer, not just from the perspective of the reader now in, in 2019. And so then they would say that they, if they acknowledge Johannine authorship, which most of the time they don't, the person who's writing this is reflecting in like sometimes as late as like 150 AD, which is just ridiculous. Um, reflecting on the events of the destruction of the temple and the time up to when he's writing. And he's reflecting these. And the reason he chooses symbolic language is because he, he wants to make a statement about good and evil across history. That's universal. So basically they're saying he takes the events that happened and he allegorizes them and turns them kind of into like Aesop's fables. But there's also right. a softer form of idealism. And this is the one that I think is probably more common. And actually you see some of this in reformed writing where the book of revelation is telling you about these, this repeated ongoing cycle that's happening of, of the forces of evil coming against the church at times, the church losing ground and at other times the church gaining ground. But there's this sort of cycle that happens that will someday consummate into a final cycle. And so, so they have a mixture of this futurist view and this partial preterist view. And this is where you get thing, people saying things like, well, the antichrist is really a, a symbol for any, 
any force that sets themselves up against the church. And so it could be the Roman Catholic papacy. It could be the forces of Islam as they invaded, you know, uh, Byzantium. It could be, um, you know, the LGBTQ agenda. It was real popular in the in the 90s and early 2000s. It was Russia. It's China. Like it's these forces, these forces that are opposed to God and what God wants to do. Right. And they cu- they culminate in these things. So that is not actually totally alien to reformed exegesis, particularly on the book of Revelation. You see a lot of that in Calvin. And that's where this historicist view happens. You actually have a fair representation of the historicist view in certain reformed resources, too, where they're saying, like, not only uh, is some of this in the past and some of this in the future, but it's actually the entire church age stretched, the entire church age compressed into 22 chapters. And so they would say, you know, roughly in the midpoint of the book is the birth of Christ. Some of the stuff in the beginning of Revelation is actually prior to the church age. And then everything after is coming after Christ. Um, and there's some of that in the Reformed tradition too. So I think what's important for us to recognize is that even someone who identifies themselves as a, a premillennialist or even a dispensational premillennialist is probably going to be influenced by an idealistic and a uh, partial preterist perspective, even though they're like dominantly a futurist. And the same is true of a postmillennialist who's going to have some things that they acknowledge happened in are going to happen in the future. Um, you know, it's like one of those radar maps, you know what I'm talking about, where they like you chart your your rank on a particular axis and you have a bunch of them and it sort of builds this blob. And the, the, where the weight of the blob is shows you kind of like where your perspective is mostly. Most people, they would have a blob in one of the corners, but there are very few people that would have nothing that extends in sort of the opposite direction of what they're identifying themselves as. I think that's fair. I think the challenge for us in having this conversation is to encourage people to consider a partial preterist view, especially if you've just always thought it was this should be interpreted in idealism or with just a futurist perspective. And then, of course, just caution against an extreme amount of preterism that would teach that all of God's law was fulfilled in in AD 70, which, I mean, that sounds really extreme, and it is. There are people, though, that are very convicted by that. And, of course, they're going to go to Jesus' Olivet Discourse and talk about him saying, you know, before this generation passes away, all these things will take place. But the bottom line is, if you are full preterist, you're basically also a replacement theologian. Right. I mean, like it's, in the, it's hard like to get away from sense, that. Yeah. yeah, right. It's it's hard to get away from that because then you have to, you really have to say that this idea of the new heavens and new earth that's spoken of in Revelation 21 to a full preterist, that's a description of the world under the new covenant. So right. just as the Christian was made like a new creation in Second Corinthians, so the world is under that new covenant as like a new earth. And then you get into all the weird things about, like you said, you, you have to throw out the text because you have to do these amazing gymnastics to get around the the second coming right. and the judgment, the final judgment, which they would argue is in the process of being fulfilled. It just is really weird. And yeah. that's because it does not comport with the scriptures at all. So I love this idea of speaking about preterism because it was enlightening for me to understand and research this because when I was having conversations many years ago about this with people, I realized that there was kind of a blind spot that I wasn't considering that God may have already fulfilled some of this in part because here is John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing in a contemporary way. Right. So there's something there for the people of the time and there's something yet for us to look forward to. So it is this it's consistent with the biblical approach of telescoping when it comes to prophecy. And so we're getting both in this book, the wonderful fulfillment of saying, yes, this happened. This is what God has already done. And it increases our fidelity to the scriptures and understanding of the promise, knowing that we can trust God, that the future is yet to happen. And there's beauty in seeing both sides of that. And I just think more Christians should really think actively about that and not get so stuck in the extremes, but also appreciate that it's very possible that all of this is from future perspective, at least where we we stand in our chronology. Yeah. And, you know, I think the... The hermeneutical kind of key, I think, to understanding the book of Revelation is to understand that the text had to mean something to the people who received it. Right? Exactly. John didn't deliver this to the books, you know, the seven churches and have them go, oh, well, chapter, you know, these this first uh, sixth of the book. Yeah, that makes sense. That's for me. But the rest of this stuff 
yeah, I don't need to worry about that. Like, that doesn't make right. any sense with what the book is for and the gravity that's attached to the book, right? If anyone adds to this book, all the curses of this book will be added to them. Well, that doesn't even make sense if some of the curses are not contemporary to the people reading it, right? If the curses of the book are only going to happen 2,000 years in the future from the perspective of the writer, then what does it matter if someone in the second century adds to the book because the curses haven't happened yet. So at the same time that we sh we ha we can't hold a view which makes the text meaningless to the original audience, right? That would be kind of the full futurist or the hyper futurist view that everything past chapter 4 is meaningless to the original audience because none of it none of it is going to happen in their lifetimes. Um, we also can't hold a view that makes it meaningless to the reader throughout the ages, right? Because all scripture is given for the instruction, rebuke, correction, and edification of God's people throughout all time. That includes everything in Revelation. So if the if the book is meaningless to you and I reading it now, because all it is is basically history that happened 2,000 years ago, anytime we have a view that makes the text meaningless to a group of people, we're probably on the wrong track. And so the reality is that we're all probably somewhere in the middle, and that's totally okay, because the book right. is intended to be mysterious. It's intended to be evocative. And and frankly, it's intended to be a bit of an inside joke to the people who are reading it. And I say joke, not in the sense of ha-ha, but it's, it's an inside account using insider language that people who are on the outside, it was intended for them not to be able to hear, right? That's the repeated refrain. Let he who has an ear to hear understand what the Spirit says to the churches. What John is saying there is, this is a code. I'm speaking this in a code that you need to understand. And so let he who has an ear, let him who understands the inside language that I'm using, let that person understand. Um, you know, you and I have a, a million inside jokes. And there are times where like those inside jokes come out on the show because that's just how we talk to each other that nobody else is going to understand. But there are times that I listen back to an episode and I just crack up laughing because of a little inside joke that we made and, right. and nobody else gets it. But that's fine because that's that's the point of an inside joke is for those who are on the inside to understand something that those who are on the outside do not. So the fact that we don't understand all of the language in the book is not a challenge to what the book is. It actually strengthens what the book is because Paul uh, John says that this book is going to be hard for people to understand. So it's just important for us not to take it to extremes and not to make the text meaningless to either the original audience or to those reading it 2,000 years later. So if some are listening to this and we've just blown through a ton of stuff with full and partial preterism and you just feel like you just got like hit by a fire hose, which probably you did. One of the things I'd recommend is if you're looking for a decent resource to read a little bit more about this, there's an interesting book called When Shall These Things Be? It's actually a compendium. It's edited by a man named Keith A. Matheson, and it's a reform response to hyperpreterism. It's a kind of a series of short essays. And even though it's kind of speaking against hyperpreterism, it'll give you a really decent perspective on, I would say, like a rightful approach to preterism. So yeah. When Shall These Things Be? edited by Keith Matheson, is a great resource if you're looking for a little semi-light reading that you might like to push yourself or stress yourself with a, a, a bit this summer. This would be a great, take this bad boy to the beach, get yourself some gooder sunglasses, go out to Ocean Grove, hang out in a tent, read this, you'll be edified. I would be willing to bet that most people in Ocean Grove are pre-millennial dispensationalists. <laughs> Yeah, that's no, we should have done a survey next year. Yeah. Next year. We we joked about walking around and asking people catechism questions. <laughs> I think we should actually do that next year. We need to plan a little bit better. Yeah, that would be great. Something to look forward to. Well, I feel like we already did a little bit of spiritual conferencing, but do you have any other spiritual conferencing stuff you want to talk about before we close out tonight? I think that even just in this conversation, the, the beautiful thing about eschatology is the reminder in the course of these dialogues that there is something intensely pastoral about eschatology. It's not just as like eggheaded sit on your little theological throne and pontificate about amazing ideas that may or may not come to pass. We're, we're talking about like the fulfillment of God's promises, how faithful he is and how he, there was no reason for him 
he doesn't owe anything to us to explain what was going to happen. But this is the this is the extent of a loving father who not only gives his son, but wants to prepare his children. So when we just throw out the baby with the bathwater by saying, well, it's too difficult to understand. Let's just allegorize it. Or I don't even want to go do, you know, sometimes the unfortunate thing is there are people who look at the book of Revelation and they become extreme to such a degree that they actually turn off other Christians because those people, all they want to do is talk about the end times. And all they want to do is try to find how anything mentioned there is parallel in our current and contemporary situation. Yeah. And so both of those Christians do a disservice. The one who is too extreme and that's all they talk about, that's a disservice. And the one who then gets turned off about that and says, I don't want to have anything to do with Revelation. My only creed is Jesus. That's all that matters. Right. Both those things are extreme to somewhat of an impossible degree. And so we need to kind of just appreciate that there's a beauty and there is a there is a simplicity in the book and that God is giving us a spirit of preparation and of preparedness for what's about to happen in the end times because he loves us. Yeah. And so even when you're looking at this partial preterist view, what a wonderful blessing that those in the contemporary environment who are reading these words. And as you said, God said, you, he that reads them will be blessed, that there is a real blessing in doing that. Yeah. And that beyond that, those people are getting something for their contemporary environment where they're seeing that, yes, God foretold this and he's good. He prepared us. Yeah. And then for us, we can look back and say, see, partially this has been fulfilled and God was true to his word, which again propels us into doxology and into obedience, knowing that God will then fulfill the stuff that is yet in the future. And that though we may not understand it, we know that when we read all the way to the end of the book and we study it, God wins. Yeah. That, that is, there's surety in salvation that he wins because he's ruler over all the earth that he will gather the nations onto himself. And that no matter how old we get, no matter whether we lose our mind or we're able to gain it for as long as we can, that we are held in salvation, not because of any, of course, meritorious works, because we've elevated ourselves to the place of the deserving poor, because we put forward our hands in good faith, though they're empty, it's because of God's great mercy. Yeah. And he holds us together just like he holds the world, no matter what comes in the future. Yeah, that's a good word. I think that's all I have to say about preterism. <laughs> Go like Forrest, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Uh, so would since you're you've exhausted everything that you want to say, would you then now agree that this has become the definitive episode on preterism? It might be. I, I, I I've never heard an episode where anyone actually talks about idealism or historicism. So this might be the definitive episode on those things. And that's always been really helpful for me. Like, I hope if there's one thing people take away, if they want to do a little bit of homework, those of you who are like the keeners or overachievers, and I'm sure that's probably 90% if you're still listening to us talk at this point is thinking about your approach to revelation in those four blocks and your idea of like that kind of radar map that had four axes is helpful. And by thinking of the futurist, the historicist, the idealist and the preterist, just look those terms up. I think it'll help you try to understand how you've been taught to think about the book and maybe what your default or normative approach hermeneutically is to revelation Just being a little bit of doing some self-discovery with that, I think we're really helpful to kind of solidifying your theology. And then, of course, when you're speaking with others, not that you're trying to box people into certain groups, but it'll help you understand where they're coming from so you can find points of entry to have more robust conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a little bit of warning to those, although I doubt we have a ton, uh, to those who are premillennial dispensationalists, looking into these Pre-dues. views actually was what started my movement away from pre-millennial dispensationalism. So when I was in college, uh, I took a course on the book of Revelation. My Actually, my senior thesis was on that. And before we started doing any Greek exegesis, um, we read a book called Four Views on the Book of Revelation. And it basically laid out um, the idealist view and the partial preterist view and contrasted it with classical and progressive dispensationalism. So it didn't quite go into all the views. But it literally was just the act of recognizing that there are actually people out there who don't think that the book of Revelation is like a cryptic version of the of the book of Left Behind. Like even just the fact that those people exist and that I have to grapple with their views made me start to question that sort of like left behind late great planet earth complex that that way of looking at the book of revelation so a word of caution is that you have to go into this um 
choosing your resources wisely, right? Look up the people that are writing these books and make sure that they are reputable people, that you're not sliding into some weird heretical group because the book of Revelation is another one of those things where like there's some really screwy stuff out there. Um, you find right. some really, really messed up theology uh, and and they come out of the woodwork to write about the book of Revelation because it can become a bit of a wax nose. So whoever's pet project is to prove that such and such a dictator or such and such a, a figure is actually the Antichrist, the, the book of Revelation is where they go because they can twist it to whatever they want because it's highly symbolic. So you have to be careful. But going into it with an open mind, there is a good chance that really thinking about these things is going to move you somewhere else on that radar map. So do that slowly, do it cautiously, do it with a scripture in your hand and a good reformed commentary in the other hand. That's the other problem is that most people don't ever write a commentary on Revelation uh, because they think they're going to get to it and then they die and they never get to it. I'm talking to you, John Calvin. Um, so, so just be careful. Um, G.K. Beals, uh, he's got a commentary on Revelation. He's got a uh, sort of a shorter version of it. I don't remember the title off the top of my head. Those are excellent resources. Um, there's a lot of good stuff out there. The ESV Expository Commentary Series, their book, uh, which has Revelation, is, uh, I believe, released already. So there's some good resources out there, but just be careful what you're reading. Here's what you just said. Let me summarize it for everybody. What you just said was you laid down a gauntlet, gauntlet and said, just try to be premillennial dispensationalist after researching this stuff. Just try it. That's not really what I intended, but <laughs> that's, sure. That's let's say I that. You say. <laughs> that's yes. what I heard you say. Do I have your permission before we end this to do shameless plug? Let's do it. So if you want maybe something else to listen to that's a little bit on the lighter side, Light is in like maybe a little bit less intensive than what we just did. And I mean, don't no disrespect by saying that there is on the fast God stuff podcast. Episode 26 is called how does the world end? And it covers some of the stuff that we've just talked about, but it's a little bit lighter. It's only in 30 minutes and you can throw that in front of lots of people and then have a more robust conversation through this podcast. Uh, I'll add a little bit of a disclaimer to that. Jesse and Conrad did not actually practice divination in making that episode. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> It sounds like they did, but it was just a clever sound effect, I think. You know, until you just said that, I, that never even crossed my mind. And now I'm thinking back and was like, wow, we really yeah. just ran up to the line on that one. Yeah, I will say that is probably, I'd say that's probably the best episode of Fast God stuff that you guys have made. It was an excellent wow. episode. That's I literally great. had to pull over in my car because I was crying so hard I had tears streaming down my face. So everybody should go check it out. It's very good. Uh, you can get that either from the Fast God Stuff website or from the Society of Reformed Podcasters website. It's available in both locations. Uh, it really is excellent. And it really does cover a lot of the same ground. And, you know, it, it the strength of this sort of um, affinity radar map approach that we're talking about is that you know, you can answer the skeptic who's saying, well, see, Jesus said that all these things were going to take place before this generation passed away. He must have been wrong. Therefore, he's not God. Like you can answer those questions exegetically from the scripture by being a partial preterist. Like you can you can right. say, well, part of what Jesus is saying, because he's a prophet and prophets do this all the time. Part of what he's saying was fulfilled in the immediate future, and part of it was fulfilled in the far future. Um, you can look at the Old Testament prophets. They do that all the time. So why would we think then that an Old Testament prophet's going to have some things that are in the immediate fulfillment, right? Partial preterism. And in the future fulfillment, partial futurism. Why would we say that uh, the New Testament prophet par excellence besides Jesus, why would we say that that John doesn't have that happening too? So you can answer those questions exegetically and rationally by not taking an overly extreme view of these things. Telescoping. Yep. All right, Jesse. Until next time, or until uh, all these things have already happened by the time you hear <laughs> our next episode. Until next time, honor everyone. <laughs> Love the Brotherhood. Oh.